The views and opinions expressed by today's guest do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or the show's producer, Whatever It Takes Consulting, Incorporated. You're listening to Help Jamise Banks Change the World, a podcast produced by Whatever It Takes Consulting, Incorporated. Welcome to another episode of Help Jamise Banks Change the World. This month, our topic is urban development and community engagement. You know, we always start with a change the world moment. And this month, we have an amazing young lady whose efforts to change the world extended to the White House under President Obama. And her efforts were so powerful that he came to her city to make a change. Tell him about it, Thomas. This month's Change the World moment is brought to you by 13-year-old activist, philanthropist, and future president, Mary Copenny. She's on the front lines helping kids to embrace their power through equal opportunity. When the Flint, Michigan water crisis began, instead of feeling helpless, Mary decided to use her voice to help her community and to fight for kids in Flint. Since then, she's expanded her effort to help communities across the nation dealing with toxic water. She says, my generation will fix this mess of a government. Just watch us. And now to our special guest. We have with us today two amazing individuals who really have committed their lives to making an impact in their communities. We have with us today Karen Freeman Wilson, born in Gary, Indiana, and actually came back to be the mayor of Gary and make amazing changes in that city. And now she's in Chicago, lighting up the community and making a difference in all kinds of interesting ways that she's going to tell us about. Um, and we also have with us Brandon Cosby. I'm going to take a little personal license here because Brandon and I have set a few trees on fire in the forest. We are educators who have advocated for young people, I think, pretty much all of our lives. We were probably the kids in the sandbox teaching the stuff from the book, right, um, and making sure everybody was doing what they're supposed to do. And now Brandon, I call him Brandon, uh, should have been Habitat for Humanity, now Flanner House, Cosby, because he is having farming and senior happenings and all kinds of great stuff in the Flanner House community, fighting off all that gentrification and ensuring that we still have culture, diversity, equity, and inclusion in the city of Indianapolis. So you're going to enjoy this conversation and learn a bunch today about how you can help Jamise Banks change the world. So ladies first, let's start with Karen. I was listening to um, Urban View. I don't know how many of you guys listen to that on the radio, but they had a great segment about systemic racism and how it started in the city of Chicago, the intentionality of realtors um, in keeping African-Americans and people of color out of certain parts of Chicago. So share with us, Karen, what are you doing now in Chicago? What did you learn from Gary? What do you want us to know about urban development? You know, Jamise, first let me thank you for the opportunity to join you and Brandon on this podcast. Uh, you know, I've been a longtime fan. And it's interesting that you would mention the segregation. The Chicago Urban League actually did a white paper 
on the cost of segregation in Chicago probably about five or six years ago. And it pointed to how the intentional segregation in the city of Chicago really not only costs those in the Black community, uh, but it costs the entire community in terms of the productivity that people lose because of that segregation. Um, you know, we saw a glimpse of that in Lorraine Hansberry's play, A Raisin in the Sun, when uh, we saw the uh, man go to their home after they had purchased the home, because it was set in Chicago. She was a Chicago native, and he was willing to pay the younger family to stay out of Chicago. Most recently, and I think this is probably the most um, troubling aspect of the segregation and the impact of it, there was a report in Crane's Business Magazine that talked about the disparity between housing values in the Black community on the South and West sides and uh, the uh, white community in Chicago. And so, you know, on any given block, there's uh, anywhere from a thirty dollars to $50,000 disparity in home values for the same residents. And so we are at the Chicago Urban League. Housing and financial empowerment is one of our program areas. Uh, we also program in workforce development, in uh, entrepreneurship, in uh, youth services, as well as uh, we have a leadership, impact leadership development program. But in our housing and financial empowerment program, we're very intentional that we have coupled housing and financial empowerment because we know that not only is home ownership a wealth builder, but we also know that the barriers and the challenges that come with home ownership have an impact on a person's financial empowerment. And Brandon, I want to attach you into that because you and I have had some great conversations about the history of Flanner House. And many people don't know that the model that is now um, Habitat for Humanity really came from Flanner House and people of color um, and the whole financial impact, economic impact. So share a little bit um, about that and what Flanner House is up to now in that regard. Yeah, well, Flanner House is 123 years old this year. And, you know, the, the model, uh, the sweat equity model that is most nationally recognized that Habitat for Humanity uses um, was actually adopted from Flanner House. Um, even if you look during the times of the implementation um, of the GI Bill and the number of Black men in, uh, who, who served during World War II, and we're trying to realize the benefits that, that were being denied to most black men who, who had enlisted and had served. Um, about 70% of all of those black folks that ended up actually reaping the benefits on the housing side of the GI Bill um, actually reaped those benefits here in Indianapolis because of the work that Flanner House was doing, um, helping build homes. Um, you know, when financial institutions wouldn't cooperate, Flanner House started its own credit union. Um, you know, the, the, they started their own development corporation. So, so it was really kind of this intentional act of saying, like, 
we recognize the systemic inequities and and rather than push and engage in that, what we're going to do is we'll build the model ourselves and then we will finance and build and develop and create our own communities. And so that work started in 1936. Um, and, you know, I'm happy to say that, that a good number of those homes are still standing and a good number of them are still owned by those same families. And so this next generation that we're leaning into now is around how do we build a model of home ownership and connectivity so that folks in this historically black neighborhood here on the near Northwest side um, can continue to stay um, so that so that we can push back and fight against the model of gentrification uh, by creating our own housing initiative where we work with families here in the neighborhood and the community and the acquisition of abandoned houses and uh, vacant lots um, and doing new home construction or, or tear down to the studs and renovate to build dream home for clients here in the neighborhood at an affordable price point um, with a financial partner um, in Lake City Bank that commits to never sell the mortgage um, for the life of the loan um, so that our people in our community have a local access point to a financial institution that is committed to staying engaged as a partner with them. I know we have the Chicago area the Gary area that's trying to come back up and obviously Indianapolis, gentrification in general, how is that affecting all of these neighborhoods? Uh, and, and are there some benefits to gentrification? You know, I mean, it's, you know, what we always talk about is that there, there are benefits to economic development, but right. the real question becomes, how do you do development without displacement? Okay. Right. Sure. And that's, that's really you know, what ends up happening when we talk about neighborhoods and communities being gentrified is that the majority of the money that's being passed around, the majority of the development that is being done, it's not with a focus on the residents who are already there. It's on the idea and the plan of how do we bring other people in to displace residents and to displace the culture that has existed and maintained and sustained that neighborhood and community uh, for generations. And so what we talk about rather than gentrification is withentrification, is what is the work that needs to happen so that we're able to capitalize on all of the assets, the human social capital in a neighborhood and a community within a given area to be able to then build the necessary infrastructure to elevate the quality of life of the people who are already there. And, you know, as it relates to um, Chicago and Gary, first with Chicago, there's certainly uh, gentrif gentrification. But what we've seen with Mayor Lori Lightfoot is an initiative called South by Southwest mm -hmm. that is very intentional in not displacing relatives in the South and West sides in uh, ensuring that not only are residents considered in development, but that the development groups uh, are diverse and that they have a diverse perspective that they're bringing to the table in historically Black neighborhoods. Uh, one of the things that we're seeing all over Gary, it used to be a phenomenon just on the lakefront in the city of Gary, but we're seeing it all over the city that there is an increase in housing values. And the great news is that because Gary is probably 90% Black, 
uh, black folks are benefiting from that. And, uh, and so while gentrification is always something that you have to watch out for, uh, to the extent that you have uh, legacy cities like Gary and like Flint and some of the other places, the increase in home prices are benefiting, the increases are benefiting those uh, Black folks in those communities. So I want to touch a minute on the economic um, and financial development part of this, because, you know, we have difficulty as African-Americans and people of color amassing wealth. Um, you know, our homes uh, get sold. I had a very dear friend um, that just uh, got to the place where she couldn't maintain a really big house, moved to a smaller condo. Um, her house was in a historic area, um, and she really wanted to find an African-American couple to sell her house to or person and just wasn't able to do that. People unable to get the backing from the bank or, you know, have accumulated what they need to be able to finance a home. So how do we prepare ourselves and our children, you know, to be able to be homeowners, to be able to engage in what we need them to do so that our neighborhoods um, and communities are better developed and stay um, in the family, if you will. I think you raise a point that is extremely important, Jamise, and that's that you have to start with children. And so, you know, it's not just financial literacy, although that's important, but it's also what does it mean to build and grow wealth? What does it mean, you know, when you get, and I was talking to our team and really saying, and there's a, a very robust uh, Indianapolis Urban League that we all are familiar with, and I'm sure that they do similar work to ours, but, you know, I was saying we really missed an opportunity when all of this stimulus money came down the pipe, right? It, it was our opportunity to say, if you don't really need a car or if you don't really need some of the things that people were inclined to spend those checks on, think about home ownership in the future. Think about opportunities to really save and amass wealth so that in the future you are in a better situation. And, you know, while, you know, let's say you have two or three kids, so three or 4,000 seems like a lot of money, it's more money if you save it and use it to build equity and ultimately to build wealth. Yeah. So, Brandon, you, you guys have kids. You do preschool and all of that. Are you, well, how do you feel or what's your take on uh, Karen's comments? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, it's, 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 always, it's always impactful when you can begin to help, you know, children and young people begin to make sense of those kinds of things. Um, but part of it also has to be a reconciliation and an intervention around, you know, what has happened to black families and black communities in the context of banking. And, and so, you know, we had some very direct and blunt conversations with our financial partners about recognizing what the impact of redlining um, had and continues to have on neighborhoods and communities. And so when you, when you have a financial partner that's really willing to hear that um, and then being, a, 
to be courageous and bold to come back and say, okay, we recognize these are the lasting effects. So, you know, we as an institution weren't there when it happened, but it's no less our responsibility to lean into it and to help clean it up. Um, being able to then have that financial partner at the table, you know, working with kids to start their own savings accounts and to understand why that matters and why that's important. Being able to work with their, you know, their parents or their grandparents and to be able to say, listen, y'all have been second and third generation renters sometimes in the same house um, or in the same neighborhood. And in that time, you could have bought two or three houses or bought the whole block for that matter. Um, and so here's a pathway that we're actually going to begin helping you take those steps to ownership. And we're going to roll into, you know, your purchase agreement, all 100% of what would be required for a down payment. Um, because we recognize that if we, if, if we can help you get over that hump, which quite frequently is a barrier um, to black folks being able to, to buy homes is, is not having the cash on hand for that down payment uh, component of, of the purchase and saying that we're in this with you and we're committed to making sure that you have a face, a name, an institution that's always going to be here in your community that's going to help to begin to rectify some of the, the transgressions of the banking industry of the past, you know, 75, uh, to, you know, to 80 years. Um, it, you begin to see it slowly have that kind of transformative effect that we're hoping to really, you know, to scale and, and, and to take, you know, throughout most of the black neighborhoods in the city. So, so who should be at the forefront of this, of this push? Is it the church? Is it community organizations? Is it uh, the schools? Who do you believe or feel should start pushing this narrative? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love the above. <laughs> I love the above. Um, you know, because, because I think that, that part of what we have to understand is that the Black community, as it exists today, is not structured the same way that it was in the 50s and 60s. There's a large cross-section of Black folks that are not in the church. Right. right. There's a large cross section of black folks, you know, sure. who, who will engage in community centers and multi-service centers like ours that, that don't have a particular religious affiliation. So to put all of our eggs in the basket of one type of institution to be able to carry the load, um, you know, to really kind of to, to begin to move the needle for black folks is, is misguided that we we you know, we've got to really, you know, kind of help people get in where they can fit in and, and to be able to hit it on multiple fronts. I also wanted to raise that the new mayor of St. Louis, who is a soror, she's a Delta, Tashara Jones, has done just some groundbreaking work in this area with children's savings accounts. And uh, so that's uh, a really a nod to the role that government can play. And she did it during her time as the treasurer of St. Louis, and she did it with charitable dollars. And, you know, people always want to support programs, whether it's STEM or all of these other uh, type of enrichment programs for young people. And those are good. Those are important. But, you know, I'd rather start them off with a hundred bucks in a savings account, you know, so that they can begin to understand the importance of that. So Thomas and I had this conversation, and I'm curious uh, to 
hear where you all stand on this. Um, you know, after having read all the series of books that have come out since the death of George Floyd, I should say the murder of George Floyd, um, right. probably the most popular is um, How to Be an Anti-Racist, which was quickly followed by Anti-Racist Baby, right? One of the terms in that book is assimilation um, and the notion that some of us people of color have assimilated into um, neighborhoods that don't necessarily support what we've been talking about here um, in terms of urban uh, development and community engagement, right? So what um, are, and we choose those things on purpose, right? We choose where we live. Um, so what um, is your take on what we as people of color need to be doing um, to ensure that those things that should happen, um, urban development, the support of financial institutions, uh, uh, anti-racist policies, what do we do regardless of what zip code we live in, what do we do um, as individuals to support what you need in the work you do? You know, that's uh, an interesting um, proposition that I've thought about a lot because uh, my husband and I have always intentionally lived in the community. Now, there's some upsides and, and downsides to that. And when I say in the community, I mean in the hood. And, uh, you know, so you get awakened at night by gunshots, right? But you also demand a certain level of service, whether it's the local bank, or whether it's the local Walgreens. Um, and when those standards are not there or are not being met, because we understand what we should have and what our neighbors should have, we are in a position, whether it's even city services, we're in a position to say that this is unacceptable. Now, the downside of that is that, um, you know, you have to, deal with some of the greater challenges and quite frankly, the more dangerous challenges that you find in, um, in the inner core of the city. And, um, you know, one of the ways that people who choose to make a different decision, because it's a personal decision, they can always advocate for all parts of their community. You know, one of the issues with the simulation is that you just can't go to another neighborhood and just come back to your other neighborhood on Sundays. You right. have to advocate 24-7. Yeah. And quite frankly, because you've assimilated into another neighborhood, you don't have to worry about services there. They right. are going to be delivered. But right. you still have to understand the vital role that you can play in other neighborhoods. Yeah, I mean, it, and for me, uh, you know, very much, you know, like Karen, I, you know, I lived in the neighborhood, like in the cut, <laughs> you know, for for years while doing the work. Um, two years ago, I moved out of the neighborhood, and 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 I honestly did it uh, because I needed a space of anonymity. Um, I, I needed to be in a part of the neighborhood or in a, in a part of the community where people didn't know who I was, where when I got home, I could just be dad, where I, where I could focus on my children and not 
always of every waking moment be focused on solving other people's problems that was taking my energy away from taking care of my own children. Mm. And so, so for my own, for my own mental health, um, we now live outside of, of the neighborhood. But the other part of it is, is that, that being able to step away and then to drive back into the neighborhood every day, um, is all the motivation and the time that I need to get angry mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. mad and fired up about everything that I see that is missing from this neighborhood that I know wouldn't be tolerated in other parts of the community. And, and so it, it's actually it's actually been beneficial both to me personally, but professionally, it, it's, it's helped kind of put a, 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 an even sharper edge to, to, to my sword when I lean into the fight. Brandon raises a good point. I just have to make this because uh, you don't get to be off, right? Yeah. Uh, on any given day, at any given time, somebody can come to my door and whether it's $5 to get McDonald's or whether it's to ask a question about what the city can or can't do, uh, they feel that license because after all, yeah. I'm right here, right? And so there are days that I think, yeah, it's probably time for us to look for uh, the anonymity. And when he said anonymity, it resonated so much with me. So, so I'm just curious then, so, so do, do you know your neighbors in your inner city residence and do you know your neighbors in suburbia? Because one of the things is, you know, we used to have community. We don't have the same kind of communities like we used to. And because of some of the crazy things that go on in the world, people kind of live their lives in a little cocoon in their own vacuum. And so is that something that we need to work on as black folks? So I... I... I know the old couple who live across the street from me because I make my boys take care of them. They take out their trash, they cut their grass, they do those kinds of things. I don't talk to anybody else in that neighborhood. Um, as I, you know, I got friends and family. I didn't move there to find more. <laughs> um, I, um, and and literally in the neighborhood where I work, um, folks know Flanner House and they know me so well, they know which window on the building is my office. <laughs> so they don't even come to the receptionist desk to sometimes get to me. They will literally come and knock on my window um, and tell me that I need to come outside for a hot minute because they, they got to talk to me right now. Um, and, and, I, and, and I love that accessibility and, and that level of accountability because I, I know the folks in this neighborhood will come see about me if I get it wrong. But I think Thomas raises an interesting point. How do we define neighborhood or community? So I grew up on the south side of Chicago, right? Everybody's mama was everybody's mama. Somebody was watching out for you 24-7. Even the guy on the corner with the process drinking out of the brown paper bag was saying, keep on moving and go to school, right? Right. Um, And we don't have neighborhoods in that same vein anymore? Is that a problem? Should we care about, like, what are we, when we talk about urban development, when we talk about community development, you know, that sense of, like you said, Brandon, people knock on your window and feel comfortable doing that. Is that what we want in our neighborhoods or what do we want community to look like? You know, go ahead. Well, go ahead, Brandon, go ahead, go ahead. No, no. Jamisa, you know, I mean, that's that's the thing that I love about the near northwest side. What I tell people all the time about this neighborhood is that people over here love hard and they fight hard. 
and 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 you see that in the neighborhoods, like you know, like people in this community, they tell you their last name, they tell you what hundred block of what street they grew up on, oh. and they tell you where their people are, right? Mm -hmm. Like so, there's a there's a list of, of like of notations of credibility that you got like for the person who's about to come in and like tell me how to do my job or whatever like their their pedigree of their generational connection to the neighborhood and the community is very clearly articulated and outlined and kids are held accountable that way i i mean i think those things are still there i think what happens is is that we we are so traumatized by the violence that we hear about or the issues around drugs, that that we stop looking at the things here that we do have, um, because we're so focused on the things that we don't have, and th and that really was was important to us. So when we you know created, um, you know when we opened the grocery store here, when we opened the cafe, um, you know we named it after uh, Cleo Blackburn, who was the executive director here at Flanner House for forty years. Um, so it's Cleo's, but the apostrophe in Cleo's um, is a is a West African Adinkra symbol, and it's a symbol that that our flower farm is laid out in, and it looks like a flower, um, and it means abundance, and mm -hmm. and we we intentionally chose that symbol, um, you know, yeah, we we wanted the farm to be you know producing abundantly, but what it really was was an homage to the people in this neighborhood in this community. Um, who'd had the resilience and the passion and the love to hang together through 40 years of disinvestment, through, you know, the so-called desegregation orders, you know, through white flight, through all of these things, that there was still this, this incredibly deeply passionate group of people who held this community together. Um, and there is an abundance of that kind of love here. So we, we really wanted to pay respect to that. And, and I think that those are the kinds of things that exist in, in most of our black communities around the country, that we tend to talk about the negative stuff uh -huh. more than we talk about the things that continue to hold a neighborhood and a community together and sustain it. You were gonna say, Karen? No, Brandon is absolutely right. And what I would say is while you may not have the uh, traditional block that you we all grew up on, you have those community gathering places uh, in every city across this country. And I, I know that we have them in Chicago and Gary and other places. And I think that people are looking to create more and more of that every day because they recognize uh, how important that is. And um, while there is a focus on violence, the reality is that the violence has really robbed us and uh, in, in many instances of that, um, the security that allows us to engage with each other. Right. Uh, you know, you are more inclined, uh, you were more inclined 10, 20 years ago to say something to someone that you knew was engaged in activity that didn't necessarily honor the community. But now you think, well, you know, what are they going to do? Yes. Is that going to create danger? You were more inclined to embrace mm -hmm. people who needed to have that guidance. 
And uh, there, again, there's that question about, well, I don't really know that much about them. But if we're all afraid, then we'll never get out of this cycle. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, while I probably take more risk than I should, I'm willing to go outside of my comfort zone because our community really does demand that. So I have to ask a political question. Um, You know, we're reading now all of these things about voter suppression, all of the rules um, that are going to uh, keep people from getting out to the polls. And we all know around this table that policy isn't so much about who is the president, but about who are your local people who are making decisions. So what advice um, can you give us for what is to come, right? We'll be having elections before we know it, whether that's school board or city mayors or whatever those things are. So what's your advice to us and what should we be on the lookout for if we're gonna continue to grow our and support our communities? Mm -hmm. Loaded, isn't it? (laughs) You know, I I mean, I think that, you know, there are a couple of things. you know, we're we're a voting site, and you know, we had heard some rumors and some grumblings that there were going to be, you know, armed white supremacists oh, dear. showing up at you know at voting places where black folks were predominantly casting ballots to try to intimidate them and scare them away. You know, the revolutionary in me was kind of secretly hoping they would show up here. Um, Is that you, Brandon? That's a very dangerous thought. I know. <laughs> and, and that's where, you know, you know, but the flip side of it is, is, is that the conversation, you know, that we really have to have within our own communities is around, like, look at the lengths that people are willing to go to try to prevent you from doing something that you're claiming that you really don't have an interest in doing. Mm-hmm. Like, like we know that that black folks level of participation in elections is not where it could be or where it should be. And yeah. even in that space, like these individuals from a, a party that shall not be named are more concerned about a black man with a ballot than a white man with an AK-47. And, and you That's need to real. understand the power that you have in that and and let that be the motivating factor of like, listen, I don't care who you go vote for, but because people are working this hard to try to keep you from it is something that you really need to begin to consider about why it's all the more important for you to actually go and do it. That, that's absolutely right. We know that there are always going to be people who are going to try and keep us from voting, keep us from excelling, keep us from doing things. The reality is is that if we focus on what they are doing, then we will miss it. And so I would say, you know, we can't, uh, and, and there are things that we can do legislatively to, you know, make our voices heard in terms of the voter suppression laws that are being passed just about in every state house across the nation. But it's not what folks do, it's how you react to it. And at the end of the day, they can make all kinds of rules, but they cannot prevent us when we come out in record numbers. We saw that in Georgia, right? right? And I suspect we'll see it again. The second thing is, don't get lost 
and the presidential hype. Because to your earlier point, the down ballot races are more important to our everyday lives. Whether you're talking about school board, whether you're talking about township government in Indiana, whether you're talking about water reclamation district in Chicago, whether you're talking about the mayor's office and the governor's office, all of those races and those that are typically on the ballot at the same time that they are city council are extremely important, state rep, state senator. And so I just hope that people, you know, there are some folks that vote every four years just because it's a presidential election. Well, what are you doing on those other years? Are you saying that, you know, that doesn't matter? Come on now. Well, you know what the problem is in that regard because uh, I was even thinking about running for office here in Indianapolis. We do not know what we don't know. Mm-hmm. And the, the heartbreak is, is that we're not disseminating enough information just to the masses, and especially in our community, to give them some understanding of the importance of those elections that you're talking about. And that's the heartbreak of it all. Well, it, I mean, it, it, it's directly tied to when you when you understand you know, what systems of oppression do is that there's a cross-section of us who have never seen ourselves as part of the system, um, but merely victims of it. Um, and, 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 and helping folks begin to bridge the gap of saying, like, you need to understand, like, the more presence that we have where we're actively engaged in it, mm-hmm. as opposed to responding to it. Okay. Um, gives us more leverage and more opportunity to create better outcomes. Right. That's absolutely right. And, you know, one of the things that we can thank millennials for is the increased access to information. Um, There are any number of apps, Ballotpedia. Uh, My daughter and uh, one of her college friends from uh, and source from Howard developed politicking, which is an app. And so it's important to get the information because now it's there in the click of a phone and we've not always had that. So if we get that information, then we can be not only an informed voter, but we can be more civically engaged once that person is elected. And we shouldn't just stop on election day. Now, once a person is elected, once they have run the won the right to represent us, it's important to hold that person accountable. So there is, uh, you know, what are you going to do, and what are you doing once you are elected? Unfortunately, like happens every time we do this podcast, we are coming to the end of our time, right. and we. Thomas and I, after every episode, we go, man, we could have talked with them so much longer. Um, And so we want to first thank you, and we want to give you the opportunity to give parting words. So, you know, we want to help change the world. Um, What are your parting words to people about how they can be a part of that process? And since I started with this with Karen, I'll start with Brandon, and we'll end with Karen um, in looking at what we can all do to help change the world as it pertains to urban development and community engagement. So Brandon, your last words. My last words were number one is don't keep waiting for everybody to get ready. Mm -hmm. Um, If if we wait for everyone 
you know, to be ready or to get ready, then then nothing is ever going to happen. Um, you know, Harriet Tubman didn't wait for everyone to get ready before she left. Uh, <laughs> she was going, and who was ready to come was coming with her. Uh, you know, and 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 I think that sometimes we get we get stuck in this place of thinking that unity means that a hundred percent of us have to be with us a hundred percent of the time. Um, and the fact is, is that you know when it's time to do work. Like whoever shows up and who's ready to lean into the work is exactly who is supposed to be there. Um, and so just don't wait, don't wait for permission, don't wait for your time, don't wait for anybody else. Um, you know, it, it's it's the urgency of of recognizing that that if if the spirit hits you and moves you that it's time to do something, then then do it. Uh and and do it with the best of intentions with, with the other folks who are ready to go right then. Powerful words. And we close Absolutely. with my soror, uh, Karen Freeman Wilson. Um, the, my last words are first, thanks. I, I appreciated the uh, ability to be in the conversation. And I would just remind us all that everyone has a unique superpower. We all don't have the same, but we all have one. And with that superpower comes a responsibility to community. And, um, you know, sometimes we get busy, right? And, you know, we're working or we're providing for our family or we're doing the things that we know are important. But if everybody just uses their ability, their superpower a little bit for the community, then we'll all be better off collectively. Those are powerful words for change. We want to once again thank Brandon Cosby, the executive director of Flanner House. If you haven't checked it out, check it out. Amazing community engagement is happening there. And Karen Freeman Wilson, the CEO and leader of the Chicago Urban League. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Make it a great one. Change the world. Okay, Thomas, we did it again. Amazing guests, really amazing guests. Next month, our topic is education. And we're actually going to have a panel of people who are doing some amazing things with young people all around the world, including an engineer from Haiti who's taking a bus throughout Haiti and bringing the internet with only the sun. That sounds great, Jamise. I cannot wait until next month. And don't forget, we're going to continue to work to help you change the world. The views and opinions expressed by today's guests do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or the show's producer, whatever it takes consulting incorporated. You've been listening to Help Jamise Banks Change the World, a podcast produced by Whatever It Takes Consulting Incorporated.